Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Well, we can hear the video, but we can't see the video. That can be a problem when it's a video, right? Not a song. So, Because the whole video is filled with text that you have to read. There's not even narration. So we could sit here, I guess, for a minute and a half and stare at each other. And hear a pretty song, or we'll just move on. So uh, if you could kind of, let's, let's have some fun here. Close your eyes with me, and I'm going to paint the picture. There's this massive cliff, and there's this guy that's trying to climb it. And there's some inclement weather, there's wind, there's sand. And the whole challenge of this is oftentimes we see the summit in front of us, and it seems impassable. But we forget that we have a God who can bring us up or bring the mountain down or remove the mountain entirely. So that's kind of what the video did. And and it's kind of as a a prelude into this next uh, portion of Elisha's story that we've been walking through in the book of 2 Kings. Um, And and today, Elisha's going to meet a family that is living through a worst case scenario. I mean, everything has gone wrong and they feel hopeless and helpless. Have you ever been there in a crisis? living through a worst-case scenario? I mean, most of us would probably say, yes, we have. And, and, and I think that the, the situations that rise to the surface regarding worst-case scenarios is when it's either, like in Willie's story, a sickness or disease that we don't control the outcome of or, or the death of someone that we love. Like, when it's relational, those are the deepest, most unbelievable pains we can experience, right? It, it is when, when someone we care and adore, their, their life, their presence, their voice is no longer in our lives, or we see someone we adore get sick with something that we, we aren't entirely sure how it's going to turn out in the physical world. But we can have peace if we know that they know Jesus. I mean, worst case scenarios cause us to kind of go down an emotional roller coaster where we just feel floods of emotions all the time, sometimes all at the same time. And you can go from anger to deep sadness or despair or grief to, to hopelessness, to feeling lonely, to feel like nobody sees you or nobody knows what you're going through. And then there's other times in the midst of crisis where you don't feel anything at all. You're just so emotionally exhausted that you're so wiped out, you just feel numb. And it's hard to even imagine that this is reality. You feel like you're living in a nightmare. And you're like, is this even really happening? Worst case scenarios are circumstances in our lives where we feel trapped, where we feel completely surrounded on all sides, where it seems like if it's just up to us and it's our strength that's going to carry us through, we, we think we want to get off the ride. We think we're done because this is more severe than anything we could imagine facing. Now, there's a, a true story kind of in our recent memory of a guy named Aaron Ralston. You may not know the name, but, but this is a guy that loved being outdoors he loved hiking, he loved rock climbing, uh, he loved danger, and he loved to put himself in dangerous environments. Well, sometimes when you love danger, at some point you put yourself in a dangerous situation that's hard to get out of, and this happened in 2003. He was uh, kind of hiking and climbing alone in this canyon in Utah, uh, not far from where he lived. He could drive there, but he didn't communicate with anybody where he was going, that he was going hiking, uh, which national park he was in, uh, which trail he was starting from. But then he got off the trail to get creative and get more dangerous, and, and he was doing it all by himself. Ultimately, he was climbing into a chasm, and a boulder broke loose, and he fell, and the boulder fell, and the boulder ended up pinning his arm, his forearm, between the rock wall and this boulder, and the boulder was lodged now in between this chasm, and there he is. 
he was lucky that he could actually stand, that there was enough there for him to stand on. He wasn't hanging by his arm. But he's lodged in this tight gorge, and he tried everything possible to dislodge this boulder. He had a multi-tool. He tried to pick at the, the rock to get it to, to loosen a little. He tried to create some sort of leverage with, with his climbing ropes to lift it. He tried to dislodge it, but he had no success at even budging this boulder that gravity had brought down and just lodged in this, in this gorge. So he immediately knew what was at stake. He began to ration his water and what little food he had brought so that it would last him as long as possible without dehydration and death. He knew he was in a place not many people ventured. He knew he wasn't in, a, in an established trail. Therefore, to get someone that would come within earshot of him screaming would be rare. He wouldn't even know the next time that could possibly happen. And so, feeling utterly hopeless, he ended up using that multi-tool to carve out his own epitaph on the rock wall. He wrote his own tombstone there. And some messages to those that he loved, hoping somebody someday would find him. He believed that was where he was going to die. Um, after five and a half days, and even getting to the point where he had drank his own urine to stay alive just a little bit longer, he was completely exhausted, running on empty. Aaron did the unthinkable. With the arm that was lodged in between the rock wall, he broke his own arm. And then with his multi-tool began to, which had already really died, amputate that part of his arm that was stuck off so he could survive. Now, I think this is the essence of, say, of the saying, being stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Like, that's the essence. Like, that's the perfect image of what that is. Um, I think when you and I think of our own worst-case scenarios, it kind of feels like that. It feels like we're stuck. Like, no matter what we do, we can't kind of dislodge this thing that's holding us down. We lack the tools that we need to break free, and it often leads us to feel as though a part of us is being amputated, and it's the most excruciating pain in the world. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe right now you're living out a worst-case scenario. Maybe it's health-related. Maybe it's every day grieving the loss of someone that you adored. You think about them and, and, and reflect on them constantly. Maybe not, it's, it's not even a recent loss. Maybe this is years ago, maybe decades ago, but just that pain, that grief is still there. It's like a part of you has been forever amputated. Maybe right now there's a relationship in your life that's crumbling. Maybe there's a major change in your life and, and you didn't ask for it, but it's coming and you have to, to adapt to it and you don't know how to do that. If you find yourself at all like on empty, and you feel like there's just too much happening in your life for you to navigate, it's my prayer God would use this story to minister you in a deep and life-changing way. So we're going to open up the Word of God to the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament. We've been taking a look at the fascinating life of this prophet of God named Elisha, the understudy, the student of the prophet Elijah. And so far we've kind of covered two stories in his early life. One was his calling that Elijah brought him, a, God brought Elijah across a field where Elisha was one of many who were uh, plowing the field with two oxen and a plow. And Elijah comes up and he basically says, Elisha, God's called me to you. You're going to be my student if you want to come with me. And what does Elisha do? He says, I'm in. I'm in 100% with God. So much so that he burns his backup plan. 
You know, for us, we would say, well, okay, God's called me to this, so how can I hedge my bets a little? I've got a plow, I've got oxen. No, he, he, he burns the plow and he cooks the oxen and has a barbecue and shares all the meat with all of his friends. Like, he is all in on this calling of God. He's ready to go. Last week, we looked at another story where he was with the armies of Israel and Judah and Edom, and they were about ready to attack Moab, but in the midst of their journey for this fight, they ran out of water. They're desperate. They're between a rock and a hard place. If God doesn't show up, they're not going to survive. And, and, and what does God do? He speaks to Elisha and says, tell him to dig ditches because I'm going to fill this valley with water. And wherever there's a ditch, it'll fill with water enough to sustain you and your animals. And you can measure the faith of everybody in the military by how long, how wide, and how deep the ditch was that they dug. So in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, we're going to read another story of huge faith. In a worst case scenario, and this story plays out in just seven verses. So let's go ahead and dive into the story. I invite you to turn, turn there with me, since we don't have the screens up yet. They're trying to reset things. If you want to follow along and see it in front of you, 2 Kings chapter 4, I'm in the New Living Translation, starting right there in verse 1. This is the story we read. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha, the prophet, and cried out, my husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. This is her worst case scenario. Here's a widow, literally next to nothing. We don't know her name. We don't know much of her story, except that she's already experienced what you would imagine is, is the worst thing a spouse could experience, the loss of their spouse. And, and, and what we know from the text, the, the context, if her two sons are still under her care and being forced to take away, that means they're young enough that her husband would not have been very old either. Probably in their 30s, maybe, with preteen boys. And, and Elisha, in the text, he doesn't correct her when she says he feared the Lord. Elisha is in agreement. So Elisha knows this family. He knows this woman. He knows her husband, who was one of the prophets with Elisha, that served Elisha. And, and Elisha's agreeing that prior to his death, yes, he feared the Lord. He loved God. He served God. But as if the death of her husband wasn't hard enough, the death of her son's father, knowing that their father is gone, wasn't hard enough. She's living at a time in history and in a culture where she wasn't allowed to own property. She wasn't allowed to get a job. I mean, really, at this point for a woman, the only job they were allowed to have was, was the, if they were that desperate, was a job no woman would ever want to have, if you're tracking with me. It was the only option that they would have. And so this is the decision that lies before her, She's in the most worst-case scenario you could imagine in the ancient world. It's a horrifying place to be. And because she couldn't pay the debts of her husband, debt collectors were showing up at her house ready to collect. They'd probably already taken, every, taken everything in value, of value in the house. And they even had legal backing in this culture to take her sons and to make them slaves to pay off the debt their family owed to them, that they had loaned them. And, uh, and, and in this context, they would have worked until the year of Jubilee when all debts were forgiven. So we don't know entirely how long that would have been, would it, but it would have been years, and it could have forever altered the future of her boys by being slaves for years. Now, even though the Bible doesn't record her name, 
Even though we don't have a a bunch of context around her story, Jewish tradition tells us that this widow was most likely the wife of the prophet Obadiah. And if that was the case, then there would be no wonder that there would be financial distress because Obadiah was known for being incredibly generous, basically taking everything that was given, everything that he had, and turning it over to, to provide for others. He even is recorded providing for 50 other prophets. So his desire to be generous and kind, actually because of his death, puts his wife in a sticky spot. So here she is, a devastating place, a desperate place. She's lost her husband. She can't pay her bills. And now both of her sons are being threatened from being taken from her. Does it get much worse than this? Some of us maybe came through the doors today or watching online and, 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 and you turned on this message today and, and maybe you would say, you know what, compared to that, I've got entry-level problems, right? Maybe you came today kind of feeling weary because you have a difficult boss or, or you have some pressure at work, you're trying to navigate and it's, you know, it's, it's really a pain, but, but right now you're like, but those aren't problems compared to what this lady is dealing with. Maybe you drove in today and you're like, I think the car's making a funny noise, we got to get it checked out. Or maybe in the rain, you dropped your cell phone in the parking lot and the screen's cracked. I don't know. Maybe you grabbed coffee and you asked for cream and sugar. You only got cream and no sugar and you're still mad about it. The bottom line is those are entry-level problems, right? Now, I'm not dismissing them, but in comparison to a grieving widow whose two preteen sons are going to be forced out of her home into slavery for years, the entry-level problem, this is a severe problem. And there are some of us here, some of us online, that are facing severe crisis or catastrophe moments in our lives. I mean, maybe someone that you trusted betrayed you and lied to you, and what you thought you had, now you're not sure. Maybe your marriage is barely hanging on, and you don't know if you guys are going to make it. Maybe you have a child going down a dangerous path, and you're mature enough to see where it goes, and you know that they don't want to be where this leads, but they aren't listening. Maybe you're in agony because you're facing a transition you don't want to admit is happening, and you feel stuck. Maybe there's a health crisis of someone that you love that they're facing and you have zero guarantees about how this turns out. Maybe there's a financial mess you're in the center of and you have no idea where to turn or what to do. Now, in these catastrophic circumstances of our lives, many of us probably can always, we can all, if we're not living one right now, we can reflect on one that we've experienced because we talked about in the last series that God's word tells us that we will experience suffering and pain in this life. Jesus himself says that. But in these catastrophic circumstances, we often don't know what to do. We kind of feel paralyzed. What do I do to solve this? What do I do to fix this? And the problem is, as human beings, our natural gut reaction is, okay, i got to do something to correct this. Now, it's natural. It's normal. It's human. It's an intuitive response to, to put our hands to something and try to change the outcome. Right? There's something happening. I don't want it to happen, so what do I do to change it? It's a normal reaction. But if you're a person of faith it shouldn't be the first reaction. If we need to navigate moments of crisis or catastrophe, when we feel we have nowhere else to turn, there's an important first step we have to make sure we don't miss, and we see it in this story. We see that in this woman. One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you, Elisha asked. What can I do to help you? At at the point of her deepest struggle, she chooses to come and talk to someone who had faith in the God that she believed in. And if you notice, Elisha doesn't, he doesn't wallow in pity for this woman. He doesn't pull her aside when she gives this incredibly heartbreaking story and say, wow, I'm so sorry. Oh man, that's really bad. I mean, stinks to be you, huh? 
He, he doesn't offer a platitude that really doesn't mean anything. Like, he doesn't say, wow, that's a bummer. Like, I can't, can't imagine what you're going through. Hey, I'll keep you in my thoughts. Like, in, in this scenario, it's just like, keep me in your thoughts. Like, what does that do? How does that help? Keep me in my, your thoughts don't have power. Prayer has power. You know, if, if I'm going through something hard, I don't want you to think about me. I want you to lift me up before God. I want you to respond as Elisha does and say, what can I do to help? I mean, the first step of navigating a catastrophe is to connect with someone who has faith when yours is slipping, when yours might be fading. It's the first thing she does. She's like, I got to go to the man of God because I got to get my head on straight. I got to get my heart on straight. I got to get my spirit on straight and remember who God is. Elisha wants to, to meet her at her point of need. That's why he offers to help, but he isn't God. He has faith in God. He believes God can do impossible things. He, he know God, knows God cares about this widow and that God has a plan. But the first step, if you're a person of faith, is this is why it's so, is to connect with other people with faith in Jesus so that in those times where your faith might be slipping, you can, you can lean on their faith. This is why it's so important to nurture relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when things are going good, when things are going nice and smooth, if we don't nurture those relationships, when the crisis comes, and it will, when the catastrophe occurs, and it will, where do we turn? Who do we have to turn to if we don't have brothers and sisters in Christ to lean on? And I would bet that if you've been walking with God for more than a few months, you have experienced this organically, where you went through some situation in life and it caused you to have doubts or questions about God or faith or His presence in your life, and you share that with somebody else who has faith in Jesus, and maybe they shared their story of God taking them through some rough stuff, and you step back, you say, man, I don't have problems compared to what God did in their life. Surely He's with me, where their faith inspired yours. Their faith inspired your doubt, because they've walked through tough stuff. The second thing that this kind of leans into that we see in the story is, is oftentimes there's a gift in finding out that we don't get what we want all the time. When we don't get what we want, we discover Jesus is all we truly need. See, God's designed us as human beings with relationships for relationships with one another so we can feed each other's faith and we can speak what matters most into each other's life. You know, everything that bothers us, everything that, that we struggle with in this life, no matter how much God changes it in the here and now, it's still going to pass away. It'll burn It'll rust, it'll corrode, moths will eat it and destroy it. Everything we focus on in this life has an expiration date. That's why faith in Jesus is the one thing that gives us eternity and a promise of resurrection. Jesus is all we really need. Because no matter how much he changes the things in our day to day, no matter how much his blessing is here and now, our life here is like a vapor and then it's gone. And then we have the rest of eternity with him. There is a good thing of finding out that we don't get what we want all the time, that there is struggling and suffering, and that is we're faced, forced to face the truth that, what, that Jesus is all we really need. And Elisha says five of the most powerful words, the most different, difference-making, life-changing words you can ever say to somebody. How can I help you? How can I help you? When you're presented with needs, in the lives of people you know, in the lives of family members, or, or needs in the life of the church, and we share, hey, here's a need, or here's a way you can serve, is your gut response to say, well, how can I help? Or is your gut response to say, how can I get out of this? You know, I promise you, joy and peace and gratitude fill the heart of the Jesus follower that says, okay, God, you've shown me this need, how can I help? What's my role in it? Rather than say, oh, man, I wish I didn't know about that, how can I get out of it? You can't always solve every problem. That's not what this is about. 
you won't have all the resources to assist with every need. I mean, it can be a relationship issue that somebody's having and is made aware to you and you say, how can I help? But you don't control that person or the other person or the relationship. It could be a health issue and, and you don't have sovereign control over somebody's health. It might be a financial issue, and, and that doesn't mean you have the endless resources financially to meet it. It could be a work issue, and if you don't work there and you're not their boss, you can't influence any change, but you can still offer, how can I help? What can I do? And Elisha gives us a pattern for the second step. Elisha asked, well, first he said, uh, how can I help? And then he asked, tell me, what do you have in the house? Tell me, what do you have? He doesn't say, I have all the answers. I got everything figured out. He doesn't say, I can handle this. I can, I can solve this. He also doesn't say, well, you know what? Let's just wallow in self-pity for a while. Let's talk about how bad you have it. Just, you know, just vent. Just vent. How do you really feel? Like, you can just vomit all over me. Like, just vomit. Like, some of us are good at that. We vomit on people, right? Like, we just vent and vent and vent and vent, and then we feel good, and we walk away, and they're crying, right? That's not the most productive means of handling things. He says, okay. Let's not live in what you're lacking. Let's not live in what you want. What do you have? He redirects her. What do you possess? What do you have at your disposal? What has God blessed you with? And then let's move on from there. And what's her immediate response? Her immediate response to the next verse, nothing at all. Nothing at all. How often when we're trapped or hurting, are we incapable of giving a proper inventory of God's blessing in our lives? Right? Like we're so overwhelmed with emotion, we're so overwhelmed with hurt, we feel so isolated and alone, and all we think of, we're just consumed with what we're lacking and what we need and or what we think we need and what we want and what we don't have and what someone else has and what we wish we had. Elisha says, how can I help you? Tell me what you have in the house. And she just blurts out, you can almost hear the tone of her voice. He's like, well, how can I help you? Tell me what you have in the house. She's like, nothing at all, that's the problem, nothing, nothing of value, nothing of significance, nothing anybody could trade, or, or, or nothing that would get me out of this. I mean, I have nothing, nothing at all. It's all gone. And when the pain is deep and the circumstance is out of our grasp, we tend to make it worse by overstating things and dismissing where God has been generous to us in ways we don't deserve. So we overstate our situation and we heap more pity on ourselves i don't have a spouse and i don't have enough money and i don't have the family i wanted and i don't have the job i thought i would or that i want I, my house isn't nice enough or i i don't have what i want and we can fixate on that i don't have what i want now i've been told there's women in our culture i don't know any but i've been told they exist there's women in our culture that can walk into their bedroom and open the doors of a closet and see colors and and, and fabrics and and garments and shoes and 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 literally falling out of the closet and they can i i don't know any but i've been told they exist they can open that and say i've got nothing to wear when there's enough clothing in there to actually like clothe an entire russian orphanage but but they have nothing to wear it's funny how when you're in need all you see is what you don't have. And this is exactly where this poor woman was. She lost everything of value. And she's at risk of losing the last two things that matter to her sons. And all she could see in her vision was what she was lacking. But then she catches herself mid-sentence and she mentions the one thing that's left. She says nothing at all except a flask of olive oil. There's nothing left. They've taken everything. I have nothing of value left. Oh yeah, except this one little thing. How often might it be in our lives that the things we look at as small, worthless, 
insignificant, we're quick to discard. And God looks at them and says, oh, in my hands, that can be powerful. That can be huge. The third thing we kind of pull from this story that should increase our faith in the midst of crisis is that we're to stop waiting for what we long for. Stop waiting for what we want. Start being faithful with what we've already been given. At this time in history, olive oil was incredibly valuable because it was very rare and had tons of important uses. I mean, of course, it was used in cooking, as we still do today. Cooking is a good thing, a valuable thing. It was, it was used, as other oils were, to help lamps burn. Uh, so light was important before electricity. Uh, olive oil was used as a moisturizer because, you know, at this point in history during Elisha's time, there wasn't a bath and body works to go down and spend $11 for a bottle of stuff you could squirt on your face. You know, it didn't exist. So olive oil was valuable for that. It would keep leather pliable, which was a pretty big deal because most of what they had, they made out of hides. It was used to keep iron from rusting. Uh, they would use it religiously as, as offerings to God because it had value. They would even use it to anoint people in religious services. Olive oil had incredible value, but she didn't have a lot. She only had a little. And in her pain, she forgot that she served a God who could do a lot with a little. He did a lot on a battlefield with a little shepherd named David. See, he can take his super and add it to our natural and do impossible things. Think about the time where Jesus was on the hillside and uh, he asked the disciples, go find some food they need, that people need to eat. And they come back and they're like, well, we have one fresh fish lunchable. That's all we got. And Jesus multiplies it and feeds thousands to the point where there's even leftovers. God can do a lot with a little if we just offer him what we have. With Moses, God's, you know, in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, God's calling him to go back to Egypt and, 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 and confront the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses spends many verses trying to get out of it, trying to backpedal. Hey, God, I think I came across this bush and somebody else should have. I don't think I should be here. I think you, you set the wrong bush on fire and, and I think I should just go. I think you picked the wrong guy. Like, it can't be me. And, and in chapter four, he even says, well, well, okay, so you want me to go, but what if they don't believe me? What if nobody trusts that I'm sent from you? I mean, what if they don't listen? And God responds and he says, what's that in your hand? Moses was holding a shepherd's staff, a small, insignificant, everyday chunk of a tree. And God says, it's not about what you don't have. It's just, just surrender to me what you do have, and I'll use it. I'll demonstrate my power at work within you through that staff. So let's stop waiting for what we want, what we long for, and let's start working with what we have. Let's be faithful, honoring God. And then the fourth and final thing that we see in this story is that God has already given us everything we need to do everything he wants us to do. We're quick to look past stuff. That's little, that's insignificant, that's worthless. worthless. And God says, oh, no, 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 not in my hands. That's big and powerful. That's exactly what I want to use. But until we're ready to say, okay, God, I give you my little and my worthless and my insignificant, he can't show up and use it. God has already given you everything you need to do what he's called you to do. And if the day comes where you've been faithful with a few things and he blesses you with more, he's going to give you what you need for the next stage as well. All this widow had was nothing at all except a flask of oil. And Elisha said, <coughs> borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. This is a private thing. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one, 
after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. Soon, every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. Pretty awesome miracle. When she went back to Elisha and told the man of God what had happened, Elisha said to her, Now, sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Now, this brings to my mind the question that we all have to wrestle with, and we often just get so busy we don't think about, who is my provider? Who provides for me? I mean, up to this point, this widow had kind of thought about, in her cultural context, what's well, my husband? I, don't, I can't even get a job. I'm not allowed to in this culture. And so my husband's the provider for me and our kids. Now he's gone, and now she has to face the truth. Oh, well, was he my provider or was God providing for us through his efforts, and now that he's gone, does that change anything about God's provision for me? And now she's realizing, oh, it doesn't. God has still promised to provide for me, even in the absence of my husband. And so I would ask you, do you think so highly of yourself that you believe you're the one that provides for yourself? I mean, do you, do you put your trust and your hope in your own hands, your own back, your own legs, your own mind and intellect and experience, your own education, your own degree, your own company? Do you put your, your hope and trust in the market or, or in, uh, in your, your industry? Do you put your hope and trust in the CEO of the company you work for? That's what you lean on. Do you put your hope and trust in the government to be there to provide for you in your needs? I mean, to think that those things will always provide is, is a foolish exercise. This woman didn't plan on her husband's death. When we rely on our own hands and back and legs and our own intellect until all of a sudden there's an accident and those things could be taken from us? What are we going to rely on then? Where's our trust and our hope rest then for provision? This woman didn't plan on being a widow at such an early point in her life. And she's experiencing right now firsthand that her only real provider for what she needs is God himself, that he's faithful to his promises. And when we demonstrate our faith in action, we get to experience and witness God's faithfulness. When you take what you have and you surrender it to God and you quit talking about and craving more of what you want, but you just offer to God what you have, as small and insignificant as you think it is, God can do something special. I mean, think about it. All these jars they've collected from neighbors and friends and family, every jar in their house, they don't have any value until they're filled with olive oil. And did you catch the one thing Elisha said about the jars? The one expectation? They have to be empty. Didn't matter what color they were, didn't matter what size, didn't matter who made it or where it came from, doesn't matter what you normally store in it, so long as the jars were empty. Think about this. Think about their faith. Elisha gives them this word. You can measure the faith of this widow and her two sons when they went home and they opened their proverbial kitchen cabinets, because they probably didn't have cabinets, they probably just had like a shelf. But they opened their, their proverbial kitchen cabinets and they looked and saw maybe a jar that was half full of flour, that was all that was left. Of no value to anybody else, but that would be their sustenance to survive on for a few more days. And maybe they looked over and there was a jar that was a third full of rice. And another jar with just a few beans in it. Another jar with a little bit of corn in it. You could measure their faith by the, the fact that they would look at that, that, that cabinet and whether they would decide, well, you know what, we need to hold on to this and hedge our bets because we don't know what God's going to do. Or whether they took those jars, they said, no, God has spoke to us, so we're going to empty every jar we've got, and we're going to rely completely on God's provision. 
God can use any shape of us, any size of us, any color of us, any age of us. The challenge is not to look like somebody else or or do what somebody else does or think like somebody else thinks or be like somebody else. The goal is just to be empty of self. And God can do impossible things with that. The Apostle Paul gives us a great parallel idea or visual to remember. And I love that uh, it's in 2 Corinthians 4. We're in 2 Kings 4 in the Old Testament. And this is verses 1 through 7. If you go to 2 Corinthians 4, 7, there's kind of like a connection, a beautiful connection between 2 Kings 4, 7 and 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Here's what Paul says. He says, we are like clay jars in which this treasure is stored. The real power comes from God and not from us. You and I, what do we have to offer? What are we? We're dirt containers. That's it. That's what a clay jar is. Clay is just fancy dirt that's dried and baked. and Then it can hold things, but it's, it's in essence dirt. That's what we are. And yet what does God put within us? The treasure of his spirit. We become the temple of the living God. A priceless treasure And God is always, his word tells us, he's always on the lookout for jars of clay that are willing to be filled up with him. Emptied of themselves and filled up with him. So, there's a discipline of being a child of God, redeemed through Jesus, with faith in Jesus. There's a discipline of learning to empty ourselves. It's not a one-time thing where like today, okay, make the decision to empty yourself and that's it, you're empty the rest of your life. No, in four minutes, you're going to start to fill yourself up again. So we have to empty ourselves of pride. We have to empty and keep emptying ourselves of greed. We have to empty and keep emptying ourselves of ego. We've got to empty and keep emptying ourselves of bitterness and a thirst for revenge or a thirst to get even or to show somebody they're wrong or to get our way or to have our dreams be reached or our plan for the future. We have to empty and keep emptying ourselves so the Holy Spirit can fill us with the treasure of his spirit, the oil of the spirit. And he keeps filling us over and over and over again as we empty ourselves over and over and over again. And the only time he stops filling us is when we go to another source and try to get full on that. And then he'll say, I can't use you. I won't accept second place. God is preeminent. He won't compromise himself. When you face a catastrophe, if you're a person of faith, The first step, the first response is to connect with someone else who has faith so that if yours is fading or cracked or doubting, you can be inspired and you can lean on the faith of brothers and sisters in Christ. Because until you get your head straight and your heart straight and your spirit straight and you remember who God is and what he can do, you're just going to try to do things to cause the outcome you want. You're going to try to do things to try to correct the problem you see. And God may say, no, this problem exists not for you to fix in your power. This is a problem that only I can fix in my power as I fill you. Connect with someone who has faith. The second thing, when we don't get what we want, we realize Jesus is all we truly need. That's a hard lesson to learn, but it's a necessary one. Because it helps us realize everything in the here and now is temporary. It doesn't last except for souls. The third thing, we have to stop waiting and asking for what we want and start being faithful with what we've already been given. Stop fixating and focusing on what we lack and be faithful with what God has already blessed us with. And then the last thing is recognizing, okay, God, you've given me everything I need to do everything you've called me to do right now. There's nothing else I need to be faithful to you. 
and the calling you have on my life. I'm going to invite the worship team up. They're going to kind of close us with a song. And the purpose of this song really is just to give us a few moments. Now, for those of you joining us online, I want to encourage you, don't just kind of tune off and you know, move on with your day. Spend a couple of moments reflecting on this message, reflecting on this idea of emptying ourselves so that God could fill us. And what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song that maybe you want to stand, maybe you want to sit, maybe you want to come forward and kneel. You can do that. You can turn and kneel at your seat, whatever you want to do. But it's just an opportunity, a few moments to empty yourself, participate in that discipline of saying, God, I I don't want it to be about me. I don't want it to be about my dreams. I, I don't want it to be, even in the midst of crisis, I don't want it to be about what I want. I want to empty myself of self so that you can fill me with your spirit, God. Here's what this song says in the lyrics, and it just emphasizes what God wants to give and what God can accomplish and who God is. We're going to sing, God, you give life. You you, You are life. You are love. You bring light. If you're facing darkness, he's the one that brings light. Nobody else is going to bring that in. It says you give hope in hopeless circumstances. The song says, you restore. God can even restore a dream that you've long since forgotten. God can restore that. He can restore a relationship where it seems like things are fractured forever. God can restore that. And then the chorus of this song simply even has a better idea of emptying and filling. And it's this idea of it's your breath in our lungs, God. Empty yourself of your breath as you sing and just sing and allow your breath to bring praise to his name because of his goodness, his mercy, and his faithfulness and demonstrate in faith through song that it's his breath in your lungs and you're going to use that breath to praise him and you want to empty yourself out so he can fill you with the oil of his spirit.
for one second just to have a seat where you are just make yourself comfortable in your chair and I want you to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out just fill your lungs with air and then nice and slowly empty your lungs and do it again breathe in deep and empty those lungs again Father God may that be the, the rhythm and the pattern of our lives the demonstration of our lungs with, with, with every part of our soul, every fabric of our being, that we would learn that discipline, Lord, of emptying ourselves, recognizing what we have is small and insignificant. doesn't matter how big a bank account is. It's not the cattle on a thousand hills that you own. doesn't matter how many gifts and abilities and the power we have at our disposal or the authority, because it doesn't rival the authority of King Jesus who can command the dead to get up and walk. It doesn't matter how much insight or knowledge or, or, or capacity we have, it doesn't rival the Holy Spirit's foreknowledge of all things. The inexhaustible knowledge of God and your omniscience. Lord, we are but dirt containers. And yet for some reason, because you've molded and shaped us, you adore us, you love us, and you lay your eternal life, you put it in the balance to pay the penalty for our sin. You come and be a man and, and you, you lay down your life to pay the ransom that we would be free so that then you can fill us dirt containers with the immeasurable treasure of your spirit and give us the gift of eternity through faith and grace in relationship with you. God, may this emptying not be a momentary thing right now, but, but an hour from now, four hours from now, three days from now, eight months from now, 26 years from now. God, may this be a rhythm in our lives to empty ourselves of ourself, empty of our ego, of our, our, our insecurities, empty ourselves of our doubts, empty ourselves of everything positive, negative, everything neutral. 
so that your Holy Spirit can fill us up to overflowing. That we can be useful in your kingdom and in the gospel mission you've given us. And Lord, in those moments when we feel empty with all that we're facing, may we remember emptiness is good because it's only then we're in the right posture to be filled by you. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.